promised Zach that I wasn't going to make fun of his chicken legs, but holy cow, dude, you need to eat some cheese or something. Think back with me. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was mean. Think back with me to when you fell in love with your spouse. Like when you started dating and you were head over heels and you were passing notes in class or you were texting each other all the time or you were up late on the phone calling collect or you were Snapchatting each other constantly. I'm trying to make sure I hit every generation here. You were writing letters. You were engraving stone tablets to each other. I think I got all of you at this point. And you like couldn't stop thinking about each other. And when you weren't apart, your hearts were just sick. And you had these pet names for each other that you would call each other. Just shout them out. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That'd be so embarrassing. Uh, And you had like these moments and you ran to each other and embraced every time you saw each other and you couldn't wait to be together. Think about that. And now, tell me what it's like. Maybe for you, you have names that you call each other that you definitely aren't going to make public, and they probably don't even know what you call them behind their back. Maybe you, instead of being sick when you're apart, now you feel sick when you're together. Like, you couldn't stop talking, and now you wish they'd just shut up for once. And none of you are laughing because all of you are, like, nervously going, how, 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 did, how did you know? Huh? huh? Not, not us, babe, not us right? Like, like that's how this goes for you. And you, you have these moments and you have this life where you're, you're thinking like, man, when I, when I was in love, when we were kids, when we were, when we were first married, I thought everything I wanted was you. And I'm realizing now that everything I need in my life is the opposite of who you are. And even if you're happily in love right now, and even if you're thinking to me, you have no idea where our marriage is great, our life is great, I believe firmly But even if your marriage isn't as bad as we just described, that your marriage at times is a struggle. If you're going to tell me that it's not, I'm going to tell you you have a lying problem. Because we've been talking now for for weeks about when you bring two people into a life together and they bring all of the baggage that they have and everything that they are and they bring it together, there's going to be a struggle in your marriage And if there's not a struggle in your marriage, then perhaps you've gotten to the point where you're no longer working on it. I'm afraid maybe for some of us, for some of us that's the case, is that we've gotten to a point when we're no longer willing to work on our marriage. You see, if you are struggling, I I have an idea as to why your marriage is probably struggling. Your marriage is probably struggling because it's gradually gone down the list of your priorities to the point where it's so far down, you don't have time nor energy to work on your marriage anymore. And I have no doubt that the things that have replaced it on your list of priorities are probably good and wonderful things. But I'm telling you right now, if your list of priorities doesn't look like this, where it goes Jesus first, marriage second, kids third, you're going to struggle in your marriage. And I know that when I said that, I know there were some of you who were a little worried about the fact that we said, your kids aren't as important as your marriage. So I'm going to say it again to make sure you heard me, that your children 
as wonderful, beautiful, and special as your kid, most certainly above all else is, aren't as important as your marriage. And I know that your kid is probably going to be the next Einstein, and your kid is probably going to be the next, I don't even know, Joey Votto? Is that a good one? Like, whatever, you, whatever your goal is, your kid is going to be the next most amazing and most greatest thing of all time. But I'm telling you right now, the worst thing you can do, not only for your marriage, but for your kid, is to make your kids the number one priority of your life. The worst thing you can do for your child is convince them that your world revolves around theirs. Because reality will set in when they go outside and they see that flaming hot ball of gas 93 million miles away and they realize that nothing else in the world revolves around them. And so the worst thing you can do is train them to think that anything does. And so hear me out, I know that this is not a popular opinion. I'm, I'm very well aware that most people would tell you, most internet experts, who are probably the people who don't have kids or marriage to begin with, the internet experts would tell you that the most important thing you can do is make your kids have a wonderful, special life experience. In fact, in 2005, an author named Ilette Waldman wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times that said, my kids aren't as important as my marriage. And she received death threats and at least 10 visits from Child Protective Services from people who had called to tell them that she wasn't caring for her kids like she needed to be. And she appeared on Oprah not all that long ago, I read, because I've never watched that show, and, and she said, I wouldn't change a thing. And after she was on Oprah and said, I wouldn't change a thing, the death threats and the threats of physical harm came again because people were so convinced that she's wrong and that kids have to be the most important thing. But she stood by her stance and said, my marriage is more important than my kids. Here's what I want you to hear if you hear nothing else today. If you're going to zone out from me from here on out, that's fine. But here's what I want you to know, and here's my goal for you. My hope and my dream is that your kids are the fruit of a positive, healthy family tree, not the root. My hope and my prayer for you is that your kids are the fruit of a positive, happy, healthy family tree, not the root. If what grows out of your marriage, if what grows out of your household is great, wonderful, contributing kids who follow after Jesus, then you've done your job right. But if all of your house, if all of your life is based on your kids, then you're doing something wrong. In fact, I would argue that you're not fighting for your marriage. The past couple of weeks, we've been talking about fight, the story of marriage. And we've been talking about the different fights that we have. We started with week one, and we talked about fighting with each other and what that looks like and how that works. And then last week, we talked about fighting to defend our marriage against all of the things that want to attack it. But today, we're going to talk about fighting for our marriage. And we're going to talk about fighting for our marriage because our marriage, if we're being honest, myself included, isn't what we thought it would be on our wedding day. Right? Remember the wedding day when, when you rented the tux and you put the tie on or, or, she, or you put the dress on and she put the tux on, however that works for you. I, I don't know, for some of you. Well, that joke bombed. It's fine. We'll move on. Um, but you, you got dressed up. The music's playing. The guests are there and you're walking down the aisle and the, the minister said to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, and to sit by each other and stare at your cell phone for the next 30 years. To have and to hold, to love and to cherish, and to be 
business partners to the point when the kids leave, you just kind of have this empty nest and neither one of you know what to do with each other, right? Because that's, that's what we wanted. That, w- that was the dream of marriage. But it's not, is it? We have this romantic idea of what our marriage is going to be, about what our love is going to be, and then when the time comes, we find out that it's harder than we ever thought it was, and it's time for you now, for us now, to start fighting for our marriage. This is going to sound like a weird thing, but I want for you to make sure that the person you're sitting next to right now, if it's your spouse, if it's a stranger, ignore this one, um, but I want for you to be best friends with the person you're sitting next to. I want for you to be best friends with your spouse. In fact, sociologist John Coleman said that 70% of married people want their spouse to be their best friend. I've read different sociology textbooks, different marriage books, and one of the most interesting parts about life is how different husbands and wives typically are. My favorite analogy is that wives are typically spaghetti, like their brain works like spaghetti. It's why wives can't fall asleep when there's dirty dishes in the sink. Because they're, they're like, I can't sleep because there's a dirty dish in the sink, and I can't sleep while there's a dirty dish in the sink because who knows what will happen when there's a dirty dish in the sink. And men are um, more like waffles, and waffles are pancakes with syrup traps, right? Like they're compartmentalized. So when it's time for the man to go to sleep, he goes to the sleep part of his brain, and he's like, cool, time to go to sleep. But the wife is like, because her brain is so interconnected, she's like, I can't go to sleep because, because there's, there's dishes in the sink. And if there's dishes in the sink, that mean there might mean there's dust on the floor. And if there's dust on the floor, that might mean that there's clothes that need washing. Like, that's, that's the way it works. And it's the difference between spaghetti and waffles, right? Plus, waffles are delicious, and spaghetti is yuck, whatever. But um, weird, that wasn't part of the script. So, so it's the way it goes, right? But as differently as men and women are wired, both would say to the point of 70% that they want their spouse to be their best friend. And Whitney and I have said that from the beginning. Whitney and I have been married for almost seven years now, which for some of you, you've sneezed longer than that. And, but for us, we've been working hard to make sure that we're best friends. Not because we want a best friend. We have friends outside of our marriage. But because we want our family to be the root that produces fruit of kids who are good, happy, healthy, following Jesus kind of kids. And here's how we, we've learned to do that. We've learned to be best friends by communicating. If, I, if, if you text me a lot, which some of you do, odds are you have a special tone. Like I have a regular tone. It's like ding when I get a text. But then other people who text me on, on the regular, as they say, have their own text tone. Like I have, if you text me later, you'll find out whether or not you're cool enough to have your own. But my wife has her own specific tone and it's the whistle, you know, the whew, that's terrible. I can't whistle. That's how it goes. So you hear it all the time, right? We text dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times a day. And Zach, whose office is directly across the hall from me, gives me the hardest time about it. Because he's like, if I hear the whistle one more time, I'm going to lose it. How do you all have this much to talk about? Because apparently he doesn't love Abby as much as I love Whitney. It's fine. Like, but it, it's one of those things. We, we talk about business things. Whitney will remind me of important things like, did you take a shower today? Have you shaved in the last month? You know, like really important stuff. But then we also just like, hey, you won't believe what Zach just said. Hey, you won't believe what just happened at work. We just constantly communicate with each other because we believe it to be important. But it's hard sometimes to make sure that we're building a relationship and becoming best friends. There are times when Whitney has to look at me more than once more than 10 times in a day, 
and say, put your phone down and be here with us. And there are times when I have to just physically force myself away, not because the person I'm arguing with online is is dumber than me and they need to know it, but just because I have to remind myself that what I'm trying to build and what I'm trying to do takes work. There are times when I have to say to Whitney, honey, not tonight, can't we just snuggle and talk for once? That was a tepid response, I'll take it. I had to get that approved by multiple people before we used it. Some of you will get it later. Um, But there are times when a marriage relationship takes work. It takes commitment. It takes a commitment from us to say, we need to have a regular committed date night. So what we're looking for is free babysitting. Like some of you love my kids enough that you're going to watch them for two hours. I'm just kidding. Um, But we're, we're, we're investing in a relationship. And so we've told ourselves that date night isn't an expense like the light bill. We've told ourselves that date night is an investment in the future. And so finding a babysitter for the kids, whether it means swapping with somebody else and saying, hey, you watch our kids tonight, we'll watch your kids tomorrow night, whether it means saying, hey, there's no money in the restaurant budget because you won't stop going to Pasquale, so tonight we can only go for a walk at the park for date night, whatever that, it's Whitney, she loves that place, I can't help it. Whatever that means for us, it means that we're committed to fighting for our marriage. One of the most important things we did for our marriage before we even got married was we read the book, The Five Love Languages, by a guy named Gary Chapman. We'll link to it on our Facebook page later today. But it's one of the best books you can read for your marriage because he says there are basically five different languages of love. And I would name all five for you, but I only care about the two that matter to Whitney and I, so I can't remember the other three. (laughs) So Whitney's language of love is acts of service. And so no matter how many flowery notes I write, Whitney, no matter how many times I buy her chocolates, no matter how much money I spend, no matter how many different ways I tell her I love her and how beautiful she is, nothing shows her she's more loved than when I put my socks in the hamper and then take the hamper to the laundry room and do the laundry. I don't know how, but I heard there's a way to push the button and make it work. Nothing shows Whitney she's more loved than when she comes home and I have the vacuum out and I say, hey, it's your turn. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Acts of service are how it works for Whitney. And mine I'm not going to talk to you about because it's me and I don't want to embarrass myself. So, but, but it's important for our marriage to learn how, acts of lo- how, how we speak in a love language because a lot of times for us, what we typically want to do is express love in the way that we feel loved. And so we think, well, if, if you want to feel loved, then how I feel loved is this way, so you should feel loved that way too. But it doesn't always work like that. And so I would encourage you to to start exploring what does it take, what does it mean for you to feel loved? How can we work on this together? One of the best authorities on marriage is a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon. You might remember we spent some time in Song of Solomon back in February uh, when we talked about dating in our Swipe Right series. But in Song of Solomon, it's, it's a wonderful story of a man and a woman who fall in love. And I have to give you this caveat. Solomon, the guy who writes the book, the guy who falls in love, is one of the wisest men to ever live, but he didn't always act on his wisdom. So, as a forewarning, this is the story of the first woman he falls in love with and he marries. It's his true love. But in one of his less than wise ways, Solomon ends up married to 700 different women. It doesn't end well for him, as you can imagine. Like, it's, this is a poor choice. So, so just as a caveat, but 
The reason it's included in the scriptures is because it's such an important talk about marriage. And so we see in, in chapter 7 of Song of Solomon, we see how Solomon and his bride's marriage works together. And I want you to, to catch this language. We're going to skip a little bit of it because it makes me uncomfortable, and you all only kind of laughed at the snuggling joke, so you're going to be uncomfortable about it too. So we'll skip that part, you'll see. But we're going to read from Song of Solomon starting in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like fawns, the twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon. By the gate of Bethrabim, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are purple. A king is held captive in your tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. How does Solomon show his wife that he loves her? He walks in the door, he comes home from work that day, and he says, I'm home! What's for supper? No. And he doesn't walk in either and say, hey, you look hot today. He walks in and he starts with her feet, and he says, your feet are so beautiful. And I want to give you some advice. This is a, a great way to talk to your wife if, if words are important to your spouse. But I want to tell you, don't just copy that verbatim. Um, telling your wife, what did he say? Telling your wife that your, uh, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine, your belly is a heap of wheat, is never going to end well. And no matter how romantic you think it is, telling her that her nose is like a tower of Lebanon isn't exactly going to translate into modern English, but it's so important. And what we're going to do for the next couple of minutes is we're going to speak in some gross generalizations, not because I think everyone's the same, but because science has proven time and time again that stereotypes and assumptions are typically true because they're mostly true. And the way that it works in a marriage is if a woman is like spaghetti, then for her, one of the most important things she can do is have face-to-face -face interaction with words. And I, I, I've always heard this, but I wasn't always sure it was true for my wife until last Sunday. Last week, right after church, we left here and we went to her parents' house. Whitney's parents live uh, in about an hour away, and we drove to Whitney's parents' house and we were there for five or six hours. The kids loved Memo and Papa's house. They were running around, playing, having all sorts of fun. And we were there. We had lunch. We did all those sorts of things. And I kid you not, we're pulling out of, of, of my in-law's driveway. And Whitney said, hey, I marked the calendar for this day. You're going to have the boys by yourself for a little while. And I said, okay, why? And she said, I feel like I haven't seen my mom in a really long time. And I was like, aren't we in her driveway? Like, weren't we just in the house for six hours? And she's like, yeah, but they were running around playing with the kids and doing all that, and it's crazy and hectic, and I just need some time with my mom, alone. And it really struck me for the first time in a long time how important words are and how important that face-to-face -face interaction is. And for Whitney, it was so crucially important that she have that time with her mom, who's one of her best friends, no, just as a side note, she became her best friend after years of fighting and telling her no until she was finally a grown-up. That's when you become best friends with your kids, not while they're kids. That's an aside. That wasn't in the script today either. But they became best friends because of a lot of face-to-face -face time and a lot of words shared. And they became best friends because they ask each other questions like, how are you feeling? 
what's going on with you. And so this is a, a practice that long ago we started trying to put into our marriage is that key importance of face-to-face time. And so Solomon comes in and he uses all of the right words and he tells his wife how wonderful and beautiful and loved and cherished she is. And this is her response. We skipped a few lines. You can read those later if you're married. If you're not married, you shouldn't read them. But we skipped a few lines to verse 11 and it says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the field and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early into the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. And what does she say to him in response? She says, let's go on a trip. Let's go to the farm. Let's go to the vineyard. Let's go do something together. Let's go on an adventure. Let's go on a hike. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's go have some fun. And this is a key important difference between a spaghetti and a waffle. You see, as, this, as the spaghetti, a wife will typically want face-to-face time. But most men build their relationships not through face-to-face time, but through shoulder-to-shoulder time. Ask your husband, ask someone you know who their friends are, and most likely they'll tell you, I played football with those guys in high school, I play golf with these guys now, I work with those guys, I farm with these guys, those are my friends. Most of the time, you don't see guys going, I just really miss you. Can we go get some coffee sometime? Most of the time, it's going to be, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. You want to play golf? You want to go you know, shoot some hoops? Like, that's how it works. And so it's important for you to understand in your marriage that you need face-to-face time because then you'll want shoulder-to-shoulder time. You need face-to-face time because then you'll want shoulder-to-shoulder time. Whether it's finding a hobby together. I took Whitney golfing one time. Um, I recommend a hobby you don't already have because you might not enjoy each other if you're yelling at each other the whole time. Um, So finding a hobby that you don't already have, that you don't already have opinions about, might be good that you learn together rather than trying to tell the other person. But Whitney's always been bossy, so I was used to her telling me I'm terrible at golf. But um, finding a hobby together, whatever, whatever it takes for you to find time together alone, taking trips together, finding things of interest, Uh, Whatever it is for you, maybe it's bowling, maybe it's golf, maybe it's sewing and crafting, whatever it is that you both say, hey, let's take an interest in this together. Crafting. All of you guys are so mad at me right now. Like, let's just look at Pinterest together for hours. That'll be so fun. But whatever it takes, there are two things that you need in your marriage. You need face-to-face time with no screens, with no false lighting, and just words. Not to talk about business, not to talk about budgets, but to talk about life and each other. And the second thing you need is shoulder-to-shoulder time. Time where nobody's trying to put the moves on anybody else. Time where we're just having some fun. Enjoying a hobby together, enjoying a game, whatever it takes. As hard as I've tried, I can't convince Whitney that polar bear football film is good shoulder-to-shoulder time. So if you guys can help me with that, that'd be great. But together, we've always found ways to make sure that we're having fun and doing something together and enjoying each other's company. Here's here's why for the last three weeks we've talked about fighting for in your marriage. We've talked about this for the last three weeks because I firmly believe that what Jesus has planned for your life is better than what your life is right now. 
In the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And there's two different camps when it comes to this verse. There's the the first camp that says, when Jesus says he come that you may have life and have it to the fullest, he's only talking about heaven. All he wants for you is heaven. He wants you to be miserable here on earth. He wants you to give up everything and be unhappy and just sacrifice everything you can so that you have no fun, no smiles, no life, and all you worry about is heaven. That's the full life he's promising. But then there's the other camp over here, and the other camp is the group that says, what Jesus is promising you is that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And then there's like the guy, you know, with the big white teeth and the big smile on TV, and he says, your full life is your rich life when you have all sorts of money. And he doesn't worry, those types don't always worry about heaven because they're not worried about an eternal reward because they think the reward they're going to get is just a bigger bank account. But what's happening is that what Jesus is promising is somewhere in the middle. Because what Jesus is promising us when he says, I come that you may have life and have it to the fullest, is he's saying, I've come that your life is good here that you experience little bits of joy and little bits of happiness along the way. Yes, we call you to sacrifice. Yes, we call you to service. But through those, you'll see joy and you'll see happiness. And the reason that Jesus has called us to see joy and to see happiness is because he wants those to be glimpses into the life that he's promised us in heaven. Those moments when you're sitting around the table laughing until late at night. Those moments when everything else seems to not matter and all that it is is just the two of you. Those are the moments that Jesus is saying, those are the moments that are like heaven. And those are the moments that he's promised. Because this life, as good as it is at times, this life, as wonderful as it seems at times, is difficult too. It's difficult because there are times when we will struggle. There are times when we'll have pain. It's difficult because there are times when we're going to hurt more than we ever care to admit. And those are the times when we hang on to those little bits of that place that we call heaven. Heaven is a place that Jesus promised us. It's the place that he said, your full life happens when you get to heaven. But heaven isn't a place we can get on our own. Heaven is a place we can't go to because no doubt today we've thought things we weren't supposed to think. We've said things we weren't supposed to say. We've had anger. We've had resentment. We've had envy. Whatever it is, there is something in our hearts that maybe today, maybe yesterday is going to keep us from the ultimate goal of heaven. But the beauty of the story of Jesus is that when he says, I came that you may have life and have it to the fullest, is he's giving it to us as a gift. And the gift that he's giving us is heaven. And he gave it to us by coming and dying on a cross. And so every week at this time, when we talk about the life that Jesus promised us, we pass around a tray that has a piece of bread, and we pass around a tray that has a cup, and we remember that Jesus told us that his body would be broken for us, just like the bread, and that his blood would be poured out for us, just like the cup. And so here in these next few moments, if if your spouse is sitting near you, I encourage you to make this a time together 
But I would more than that encourage you in these next few moments to just take one second and think, am I living the life that Jesus called me to live? Is my life the life that is full? Is my life the life that is rich and satisfying beyond my wildest dreams? Are there pieces of heaven in my life? And I know that's where I'm going. And if that's not the case, I want to encourage you. When we're done here today, I want to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and about the hope that he promises. Here in these next few moments, just think, is my life the abundant, the full, the rich and satisfying life that he promised me? And if it is, use these moments to say thank you.